Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So, Julio Torres is an actor, a writer, and a comedian. And he's one of the funniest comedians I've had on the show. The LA Times recently called him defiantly unique. I think that's a pretty fair description. He doesn't have the typical background you see from people in entertainment. He grew up in El Salvador. He spent his entire childhood there, and he thought he'd end up as an architect, like his mother. But even in Salvador, he grew up on TV shows from the United States, and ultimately he decided that's what he wanted to do. It was classic stuff like The Simpsons and I Dream of Jeannie, but his one true love was the late 90s legal comedy drama series, Ally McBeal. I I loved Ally McBeal as a little boy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I just, uh, Lucy Liu's character in Alan McBeal was, I thought, the funniest thing. Uh, and, uh, of course, Callista Flockhart and uh, everyone in it. But uh, I loved, loved, loved Alan McBeal. I mean, it's just uh, a very tender form of imperialism, really, that, that as, a, as a kid, <laughs> you're consuming these, uh, you're lovingly consuming these uh, these American products. It's Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Julio Torres. Julio was born in El Salvador. He came to the United States to pursue a life in comedy. His first big gig was writing for Saturday Night Live. Maybe you've heard of it. His sketches on the show are, well, they're a little different than the usual SNL stuff. It's not like topical material about politics or pop culture. It's dreamy and magical and almost wistful. Here's a good example. When Ryan Gosling hosted SNL back in 2017, Julio wrote this sketch about a man who is haunted by the font used in the logo of the film Avatar. Avatar, the movie from like nine years ago? Yeah, he just highlighted Avatar. He clicked the drop-down menu and then he just randomly selected papyrus like a like a thoughtless child just wandering by a garden, just yanking leaves along the way. And so now you're worried about the sequels that are coming out? They're making more? Yes, I, well, I think I heard that one. So they changed the artwork. They fixed it. Um, it looks similar. Julio's also one of the creators of Los Espookies. It's a show on HBO about a group of friends who turn their love of horror films into a business. They provide events and, I don't know, happenings uh, for people who want to be scared. It's like the gig economy, but for spooky stuff. It is absolutely brilliant. Julio recently released his first comedy special on HBO. It's not what you would expect from an HBO comedy special. The premise is Julio talking about his favorite shapes. It's kind of surreal to watch. He shares his favorite shapes with the audience. These shapes are on display on a custom conveyor belt, sort of like the one in a sushi restaurant. There is a lot of glitter, and he imagines lives for these shapes, objects, really, that you'd never expect. But really, instead of learning about these shapes, we are learning about Julio. 
In this clip, he describes the journey that led him to discovering his favorite color. It's a pyramid second, but first, it is one of my favorite kinds of shapes, which is uh, clear with a little animal trapped inside of it. <laughs> As I was preparing this show, and I was deciding which shapes were gonna go in which order, and I was weighing out the pros and cons of all of them, thinking which one of them were stars, which ones were more supporting. <laughs> and as I was just deciding all of that, I thought, oh, I'm sorry, is this one of the many good jobs that I'm stealing from hardworking Americans? <laughs> because, look, I'm just doing it because no one else was doing it and it needed to be done. Julio, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be in the show. Did you aspire to be a comedian when you were a kid in El Salvador? No. No, I did not. I thought I was going to and wanted to be an architect as a child. Why did you think and want to be an architect? What was the appeal? Uh, well, my, well my, my mother's an architect, and I, I've always just wanted to decide the way that things looked was something that I really liked as a kid. I would dream up these like doll houses, and my mom would make them with cardboard and an exacto knife. And uh, I, I just love the idea of creating and and dreaming up worlds, for lack of a a more uh, specific term. I mean, I, I was writing little stories in as much as I was playing, uh, you know, creating little dramas within those houses that I that within those little cardboard houses, but. It wasn't until way later that I sort of stubbornly decided that that was going to be my path, uh, writing and writing funny things. Before then, it was purely visual. What was the comedy that you saw as a kid? Were you watching American comedy or Salvadoran comedy? Were Cantine Floss movies? Or what movies? Cantine Floss. Oh, Cantine Floss. <laughs> uh, I was familiar with Cantine Floss, but I was not uh, consuming I don't think many kids my age were consuming Cantinflas, but uh, I mean, there were successors of Cantinflas that I was also not uh, consuming a lot of. Inevitably, as a as a kid abroad, you end up consuming so much American media. I loved The Simpsons at an age where I was probably too young to understand most of it, as are so many of The Simpsons fans, I think. So many of those episodes really stayed with me. For some reason... I say some reason, not because the show is not excellent, but be because I was so young. But I, I love Dally McBeal as a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, uh, Lucy Liu's character in Ally McBeal was, I thought, the funniest thing. And, uh, of course, Calista Flockhart and uh, everyone in it. But uh, I loved, loved, loved Ally McBeal. Also, just like older shows. Like, I, I loved I Dream of Jeannie. The inside of her genie bottle was something that I was always hoping I would get to see uh, mm -hmm. in any give, given episode, and also just cartoons. A lot of a lot of cartoons that were American cartoons, and it's I mean it's just a, a very tender form of imperialism, really. That that as a, as a kid, <laughs> you're consuming these, uh, you're lovingly consuming these uh, these American products. One of my most vivid memories of my childhood was being in southern Mexico in Chiapas when I was nine-ish. Mm -hmm. I think I was about nine with my mom. Yeah. And I had made this friend, and my Spanish was very bad, and he didn't speak any English. So it was mostly us chasing lizards. Mm -hmm. And one day he knocked on our door, 
and uh, he just he just was wide eyed, and he looked at my mom, and he said, "Mickey e Goofy." Mickey e Goofy, <laughs> and we're like, "What's up? What's going on?" He's, he's like, "He's like, let's go." And we went, and there was a like a Coca Cola Mickey and Goofy show in town uh-huh. that we went to see. <laughs> spe- I mean, they talk about soft imperialism when when yeah, Mickey and Goofy a Coca-Cola are... <laughs> show starring yeah. Mickey and Goofy. Well, that's that is something that I I've been thinking a lot. I mean, just just with the with the news and every, and everything that's going on a really twisted tragedy in seeing a lot of these detained kids wearing like Disney merchandise, wearing like a, like a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. My, migrant kids. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the U S produces, 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 and it, it, ex- its fingers extend all over the world. And no matter where you live, the U S is a part of your life. And you are informed it is the place to be by the U.S. Uh, by portraying it as so, as like the only form of uh, life that you can see on TV. And then people are like, well, maybe if that's... Th- what if we went there? And then suddenly it's like, mm, not so fast. It only goes one way. Which is the, the, the sad part about that Mickey and Goofy story, right? That that kid yeah. can't just can't just come here it's not that easy when you were a kid your your parents were like middle class upper middle class in yes. el salvador from what yeah. i understand were they committed to living and staying in salvador i mean they they live there so i would say they are committed to living there in as much as they live there <laughs> but i mean was i guess what i'm asking is you know if you're if you're highly educated you you have relative opportunity to leave and there were yeah. reasons to leave especially in the 80s yeah uh in el salvador no they never as hard time as they have had um because everyone has is having a hard time in el salvador my mom's an architect and she's very smart my dad is a civil engineer and he's very smart and they're very talented very capable people and yet finding jobs is very hard making a living is very hard but but no no they've never they've never thought about i don't think they've ever thought about picking up and leaving and coming to the states because the hurdle of doing that legally is so much more daunting than the everyday hurdle of being there i think which is why my father was perplexed by me wanting to come here and and make a life here because in his eyes correctly i had chosen the most difficult place to choose that i want to was going to move to it would have been a lot easier for me to go to spain for me to go to mexico um for me to go pretty much anywhere <laughs> than uh, uh new york city but you always wanted to move to new york city i always wanted to move to new york city yes Yes. Was that just because there was a lot of friends on TV, or a lot of fr- oh, the TV show Friends? Um, yeah, I think that I think that subconsciously, my brain was trained to see New York City as the center of the world, and I I think I romanticized what New York City could be. But then also that was just became a reality because it is this it is in many ways the center of the world I want to be in. If you like Saturday Night Live, then you should probably be, be in New York City, you know. <laughs> um, and it is, I think, the only 
it is currently still the only place I want to be in permanently. So yeah, no, I've, I've stuck by it. Why do you think that you wanted to leave? I mean, to leave your home country is a big deal. Right. Uh, ir- irrespective of, you know, visa issues of which you've had, you know, your fair share. Mm-hmm. Just leaving one country and moving to another is a big deal. I was scared when I finished high school. I was scared to go to college, move to the <laughs> East Coast to go to college. I'm like, uh, I'll stick with California. Yeah, I, I think that I I could only be scared at the, uh, at the next step ahead of me. I think that if if as a teenager, I had sat and really thought about the predicament of going from one visa to another visa, then I would have been daunted by it. But if if you take it one step at a time and you think that your problem is currently just getting enough money for the application, for the college application, then it's it's a matter of taking it one step at a time, I think, which is how I, I pursued my uh, comedy career as well. Just being like, well, I'm just going to do this, this open mic, and then I don't know what the next steps are. I just know that right now, this is what I'm going to do, um, which is a lot easier to do when you're when you're younger, I guess. Let's hear some more from my guest, Julio Torres's uh, new comedy special, My Favorite Shapes. So uh, he's talking about objects that come to him on a special conveyor belt in a kind of uh, Miami Vice colored Memphis group <laughs> set. Mm-hmm. And in this clip, a, a horse figurine that's maybe like 10 inches tall comes up before him. A fact about me is that I, I wholeheartedly believe in reincarnation because I know, I just know in my heart that I was the Trojan guard who saw the Trojan horse approach the gates <laughs> and was like, let it in. Oh my God, it's a big, beautiful horse. Open the gates and let it in. No questions asked, I don't care. Like any of you would see a big, beautiful horse come to your apartment and you wouldn't let it in, no questions asked. How did you get the job on Saturday Night Live? There was a friend who was then a a head writer, uh, Rob Klein. he was very into what I was doing. Uh, I think he was keeping track of my work as a stand-up, and he asked... I mean, if you ask them, I don't know if, if their version is the same, but my version is that I think he was the one who brought me to the table. So I guest wrote there uh, for three episodes, and then they asked me if I wanted to write there full-time. Did you ever have to have a conversation with like a an HR person or a line producer or something where you had to say, uh, "Yes, I want to do this," but you have to deliver an you know a TV star level of lawyers to get my visa situation settled? Uh, luckily, lucky me, by the time I got there. Um 
those visa situations had been dealt with. I already had a uh, an artist visa by the time that I was hired for Saturday Night Live. And then the irony is that as soon as I was hired for Saturday Night Live, lawyers who I never even met swiftly got me a work visa specifically for Saturday Night Live just because that's their company policy. And then I believe I, I also got one for Los Spookies with HBO. So then it's it's just one of those things that like it gets really hard and then it's like easy without you even noticing it. My uh, stepmother got her original status in the U.S. in the mid-80s in a Reagan amnesty. Mm -hmm. And when she married my dad, uh, became a lawful permanent resident. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of September 11th, Mm -hmm. she became a citizen. And, you know, that had been an option available to her for some time by then uh, because she was married to a citizen. Um, But... I remember her saying to me that like <laughs> I'm going to be frank with you she's mm-hmm. not a she's not nuts about the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in the end she just became a citizen because as she said like I'm just scared I'm going to steal something and get caught. Uh-huh. Which she doesn't go around st- she's not a thief. But I I I absolutely understand what she's saying. I uh the stakes are so much higher. Uh little mistakes that Americans can make that, you know, are a ticket maybe, uh, snowball into your livelihood when you're not from here. I was terrified of jaywalking. <laughs> um, not so much because of a, a car, but because, oh, is this going to be the thing that kicks me out? So, yeah, I, I mean, I sympathize with her and what she's saying. It's a security thing. I want to I want to talk about this sketch that you wrote for Saturday Night Live called Wells for Boys. Yeah, I really think this is you co-wrote. Yes, with Jeremy Byler. Uh, I really think that this is one of the best sketches that Saturday Night Live has ever put on television. And given that Saturday Night Live is almost certainly the best sketch comedy show that was ever put on television, mm-hmm. it's like serious business that I'm saying that. I mean it too. It's a commercial for a children's product uh, that's called. Wells for boys. Let's take a listen. With Fisher-Price play sets, some kids can be four-star chefs. Some kids can win the race. But some just long to be understood. Introducing Wells for sensitive little boys from Fisher-Price. Wells for sensitive boys to wish upon, confide in, and reflect by. Some boys live unexamined lives, but this one's heart is full of questions. Just hear how much he loves the well. He'll enjoy running his little fingers around the edge of the well. On days when he's had too much, he'll lean on it and contemplate his reflection. Some kids like to play. Others just sort of wait for adulthood. That was me, <laughs> just waiting for adulthood. Yeah, I mean, it feels like you, you decided to write a, uh, like your, your autobiography in the form of a parody television commercial. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> you know, there's there's all these specifics in this sketch that that I I like dream on while I'm uh, driving my car or something mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles. Uh, one of them is <laughs> there's a companion toy <laughs> that's a, a balcony for when he's ready to make an announcement. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like that is like the idea of it being 
a sensitive, like the, just the idea of like naming and describing and seeing sensitive boyhood is a, is a big deal, right? Like you don't get that much of that, but it could also just be like, you know, it could also just be the opposite of, you know, rough and tumble boyhood or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like a, that's, that's a pretty straightforward premise. But to me, that insight of a sensitive boy being ready to make an announcement at some point is so powerful and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's written from truth, which is why I think that it registers as true to people. And I think that we have we have seen the trope of sensitive boy a lot, but it's it's always pointing at it and mocking it. And by the trope of sensitive boy, I mean like the nerd, the loser, like whatever uh, sort of broad label you want to put on it. And I think a lot of comedy... Uh, has been mocking the weird or the other, uh, which, as someone who feels like both, doesn't really come naturally to me. So I, I, I'm proud of what we did with that sketch uh, because it feel it because I think it shows that being on the on the side of the weird or the other can be funny. You don't have to mock it in order to be funny. Are you nervous when I mean this is a this was a taped sketch. Yeah, but they they play it for the audience on the big screen there. Um, you know, I I imagine you must have at least thought when you were pitching it in the room. Well, I'm proud of this. Like, I think this is actually good. It's got good specifics. It's got good jokes. These comedy people, two thirds of whom were, uh, you know, uh, well boys, and twenty percent of whom were well girls. Mm-hmm. Um, are are ready for this. But then like when it runs out for the dress rehearsal or when it runs out in front of that live audience, it, it must be nerve wracking to know that this is not a sketch about, you know, Lana Del Rey. When you say a sketch about Lana Del Rey, do you mean like a, a broad sketch? Cause not I think just a broad sketch, but a sketch <laughs> that's, that's like a very broad a, a, premise, actually. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've picked, <laughs> I've picked probably too specific a celebrity. Uh, let's say a, a a sketch about Hobbs and Shaw. Let's say where that article that we that where we found out that uh, no one in those movies is allowed to lose to each other because it would make them look weak. Right. Right. Uh, um, you know. No, I know what you mean. I am always I. I'll say this. I'm always very pleasantly surprised uh, when what I am proud of resonates with other people. And I think the same is true of this special. Something that would happen sometimes is that we had this dog who I was so-so on and it was mutual. (laughs) And this dog, this puppy at this time, would chew on some of my toys and I'd come back and find them disfigured. Whenever that happened, my mother would rush to the store and find the exact same one. And then I would perform a little ritual that I, in my head, called the transference. (laughs) Where I would take the soul of my old friend and whoosh it away from its body and deposit it onto its new vessel. And then I'd be like, great, I can play again. I, I go out there thinking like, well, I know I like this. Let's see if 
other people do. And that and that has been true of every dress rehearsal and and also my stand up too because I I feel like I operate the same way with the two of them. But also I don't know how to do anything else, so <laughs> so I will continue to do that. I want to play another Saturday Night Live sketch um, that you worked on. And uh, my guest, by the way, is the comedian, writer, and actor Julio Torres. And this was when Lin-Manuel Miranda hosted. And mm-hmm. it's another filmed piece where he is making a call home from the Iowa cornfields. And it has the... You know, it has the aesthetic quality of, um, if I may be permitted, the literally the single most uh, straight white guy aesthetic reference of all time. It has the aesthetic qualities of Field of Dreams, um, <laughs> but with a with a phone booth instead of a baseball field. Um, and he's having this this conversation with uh, uh, with his mom on the phone. Aprendí muchos American sayings como Hit the road, Jack. Hold your horses. These immigrants are coming to steal our jobs. But not like you, though. You're different. Every kiss begins with K. Algo más. Todas las casas son carpeted. Everything in America is carpeted. Espero verte pronto, mamá. Buenas noches. See you later, alligator. Bendición. What's amazing about the sketch to me is it has this magical quality to it that, like I said, reminded me of Field of Dreams, mm-hmm. right? Which is the ultimate hegemonic, uh, you know, um, magical realist American story, right? It's like uh-huh. uh, all 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 straight white guys also have a, a, a silent straight white dad who just wants to play catch with them. Um but it has that quality and it applies them with uh, an outsider's perspective on these things about American culture that we are used to being presented from an insider's perspective. Mm -hmm. And that it also has this, at its heart is this, is him relating to his mom what is essentially a romantic relationship between him and the high school quarterback. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a point, by the way, that when people talk about whenever like, that ra- that is rarely brought up to me, <laughs> the uh, the queerness really? in the yeah. Um, I feel like it's so queer. Like that's what's so beautiful. And what's beautiful yeah. about it, what's remarkable about it to me, is that is that this character's voice is encompassing both this, you know, he's describing what you know. Uh, it would be easy things that would be easy to see as grotesqueries, right? Like there's so many WalMarts, or mm-hmm. there's m- salads made of marshmallows, but describing them in a way that is reverential of what's beautiful and remarkable about them, including being reverential of what's beautiful and remarkable about you know the high school football team's quarterback, yeah. Uh, from the perspective of a of a queer kid who you know may or may not understand his own queerness, it's, that's not entirely clear. But um, you I know, don't, like... I think that the I don't think they do, or at least I yeah. I, I recall giving Alex Moffat the the very funny SNL cast member who plays the quarterback. I he asked me like, are they together? Are they not together? And I I believe the note I gave Alex was. This is something that he will look back on years from now and maybe understand. 
<laughs> so let's make a sketch. <laughs> um, and that sketch, which I I think is so beautiful to look at, was uh, directed by Dave McCary, who directed Wells for Boys and uh, uh, the the special as well. My friend and collaborator. Let's talk for a minute about your new HBO show, Los Espookies. Mm-hmm. You are kind of a pan-Latinx cast mm-hmm. uh, and set of creators. Did you find, I mean, uh, uh, Fred Armisen is half Venezuelan, if I remember correctly. I think a couple of the main actors are Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um you have a variety of different, you're Salvadoran, of course. You have a variety of different places in Latin America and uh, Latin American and um, Latin American American experiences. What was the thing when you started working with, I guess, Fred Armisen, maybe was the person who started developing this show, that you found bound this group of people together? Uh, well, there's a, there's a, well, first of all, bound, I feel like the, the show is not attempting to be the definitive representation of any kinds of people. It's not a show that attempts to or is interested in uh, educating the American audience of like what it's like to be Latino. Um, that's not the show that it is. It's just a show that it, um, I think thrives in its own oddity. It's a show made by people who enjoy things that are eerie. (laughs) And there is a particular kind of Latin American eerie that is explored in the show that I I think bound the the Mexican actors and the Mexican director and the the Chilean crew and the Chilean actors. And uh, I think that the show almost developed uh, a language in itself that was learned and quickly shared by the people who worked on it. I recall earlier on our really incredible Mexican actors were like, can you help me access uh, what this show is? Because it's, uh, you know, like me or my character are not like um, immediately clear. And then sort of once you get into that wavelength and learn that it's not that a, it's not that I'm missing something. It's not that I'm misinterpreting something is that this is something new that we're all learning together then I think it became clear and fun to them. We'll have more with Julio Torres in a minute. When we're back, Julio talks about why, even though he just created a show called Los Espookies, he actually does not like things that are spooky. Not what you would have guessed. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace allows small businesses to design and build their own websites using customizable layouts, and features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. Squarespace also offers built-in search engine optimization to help you develop an online presence. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Take a deeper dive into the art, lives, and legacies of Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and the women who played a vital role in inventing American popular music. I'll be seeing you 
Watch videos, read essays, and hear the full Turning the Tables playlist at npr.org slash turning the tables. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right. It's called Who Shot Ya, a movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Wadiway, the new host of the show and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film industry. It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets Cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Julio Torres. You can catch him in his new comedy special, My Favorite Shapes, on HBO. He's also one of the creators of Los Espookies, along with Fred Armisen and Ana Fabrega. You know, it's funny, like, when Fred Armisen started developing this show as as something else, I read originally he was inspired by a trip to Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And... Man, I went to Mexico City recently. I had never been before, and I was like, this is the best place I've ever been. This is Mm -hmm. the effing greatest. I would also, if I were the kind of guy who created TV shows, be pumped to create a TV show about it. But it's not a show that ended up set in Mexico City. In fact, it didn't even end up set in a particular city at all. As you mentioned, you shoot it in Chile, but it really exists in this almost magical world. I mean, like the closest you get to to making it not live in a magical world of its own imagining is a part where uh, uh, Ana Fabrega's character, uh, they ask her why she has that accent. And she says, and the explanation is like, oh, she went to Minnesota for a year and came back talking like that or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it, must be, it, it must be fun that you're getting to write one of the first ever HBO shows uh, that's primarily in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in so doing, <laughs> you get to write something that is so weirdly specific about something that does not even actually exist. Like, it's not even like you're reproducing something weirdly specific. <laughs> you're imagining something this weirdly specific. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's this sort of um, irony, right? That it's like, oh, a show gets to be made in Spanish by Latinx people. Oh, wait, the show is so obtuse that it might as well be a, a completely new language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there definitely could be a version of the show that's made in Esperanto, the international language. <laughs> yeah, oh, I would love that. <laughs> but like honestly the show when i watched it that it reminded me the most of i mean like anytime you're anytime you're watching something in spanish on english language television um or in a in a normally english language movie theater you're expecting like social realism you know what i mean you're expecting somebody mm-hmm. who's delivering a capital m message because that's why the that's why the english speakers who program the thing uh, right that is was- that is what allows uh, a foreign work to have a seat at the table, right? To be a, a, exactly. a, a an ambassador. 
and say like, well, this is actually what's been going on with me. <laughs> um, but this is a, a show that's unpreoccupied by that, I think, or approaches it differently. The show it reminded me of was one of my favorite uh, television shows of the last decade or so, Bored to Death, which mm-hmm. is, you know, set in a very particular Brooklyn-y world. But mostly it's just a, the thing that was always so distinctive about it to me is that Jonathan Ames, the creator of the show, uh, who I like very much personally, has been a guest on this show, is a good, a good and smart man, is a weirdo. Mm-hmm who has his own way of seeing the world 100%. And it's amazing to me that they let him make a TV show that so reflected his own weird way of seeing the world. And it's so rare that you get to see anything on television that feels like it comes from someone's individual voice that is not one that you would, not an individual voice that you would expect. Like, this is, a, this is an odd show. I love it. Yeah, it it is an odd show, yeah. Do you actually yourself love spooky things no i i i am very easily scared um i like the eerie i like um eccentric eccentric people i like um i'm attracted to the the strange and the mysterious so i think that is sort of that i approached quote-unquote spooky from from that angle and silly, because spooky things are silly, I think. Yeah, I mean, it is much, it's much more gentle and silly than you might expect from the premise of a gang of people gets together to uh, start a company putting on spooky happenings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's a real, there's a real gentleness to it that you don't expect from your, from seeing a big exorcism scene. Right. Which is such a tender scene. <laughs> let's let's hear a scene from Los Espookies. Um So most of, most of it is in Spanish with with subtitles. Some of it is in English with Spanish subtitles. So we'll play some of that. And uh, one of the characters in the gang is portrayed by Ana Fabrega, and her name is Tati. And so she has been taking any job she can get, including a job breaking in other people's shoes for a while, uh, working the second hand in a clock tower for a time, uh, and at one point getting wrapped up in a pyramid scheme selling nutritional supplements. So in this clip, Ursula, who's Tati's sister, gets a phone call from the CEO of the supplement company. Bueno? Hi, I'm calling from Yerba Light Collections. Is this Miss Ursula I'm speaking to? Si. <laughs> well, good evening to you and your family. This is just a friendly reminder that you're out of time. Where's my money, Do you know who the you're talking to? I'm Yerba Light CEO Mark Stevens, and I personally handle collections. Chasing down people like you is what I live for. You have five days to come up with my money. Please remain on the line for a brief survey about our call today. Mark's threats were A, concise and articulate, B, a little vague and confusing. <laughs> that was a great John er- John Early, one of the funniest dudes out there. Yeah. Uh, man, that, that dude's funny. Um, He's brilliant. Uh, that, little, that little giggle at the beginning really oh, killed me. Heaven. Um, how do you cast how do you cast a show like this? I mean, a couple of cast members are people who made the show. So you've got those. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you have a couple of cast members who are actors who mostly work outside the United States in Spanish. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you find the people? Well, in the case of very quickly, in the case of the uh, of all of the English speaking roles, including John's, uh, those are all friends. Or those are all buddies that were excited uh, to be on the show. That we're lucky uh, that they made the time to be in our show. But. Uh, as for the ca- the actors who play uh, Ronaldo and Ursula and like pretty much everyone else, um, the some of the casting was done out of Mexico, where our director knew a lot of actors, so we were guided by him and our casting director, and that's how we came to know uh, Bernardo, uh, Cassandra, and Jose Pablo, uh, who are in every episode, and then our guest actors, most of them are casted out of Chile. Uh, and it's just watching a lot of self-tapes, just watching a lot of auditions. And um, uh, we've, we've gotten so, so lucky to meet so many incredible actors who are just so, so funny. Are you surprised that things have worked out for you personally in the way that they have lately? I don't think so. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, first of all, I'm... Um, you know, starting. I'm very conscious of that. Very conscious of like I'm. I'm just starting, building something, um, and I'm also very conscious of the fact that not everyone gets to be afforded the, the opportunities to start building something. Um, but I think it's because I'm stubborn, that, I've always been like, well, yes, of course, that's what I, was going for. <laughs> so what next? What now? which is kind of how I operate. Well, I'm so I'm so glad for my own sake uh, that you've gotten to do all these wonderful things so that I get to see them. Um, I'm, I'm such a, an admirer of your work. I'm so grateful that you took this time to be on Bullseye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Julio Torres, everybody. Do yourself a favor. Watch my favorite shapes on HBO. It is one of the most distinctive and remarkable comedy specials I've seen in a long time. And basically, I am completely in love with Los Espookies, so you've got to watch Los Espookies. It is really, really something special. He has also written a few of the best Saturday Night Live sketches of all time. Um, we All of us are lucky uh, to share a planet here and now with uh, Julio Torres. come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week the lake at the park was refilled. Yeah, there's a giant water cannon that shoots water into the lake. It's great. Great. Every time it happens, it's a thrill. Uh, anyway, show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away. Ragu Manavalan is filling in for him wearing a floral hat today. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Jordan, uh, it turns out, hates the movie The Godfather, listed by many as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, film ever made. Um, she watched it for the first time recently and thought it was super boring. It was also her birthday this week, so happy birthday to Jordan. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Don't know how he feels about The Godfather. Probably likes it. Most people do. 
Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team, thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their record label, for letting us use it. And before you go, did you know that we've got 20 years of bullseye in the can? Okay, not quite 20. It's like 18 or 19 years of bullseye in the can. And almost all of it is up on the internet. So uh, you can listen to, you know, you want to listen to uh, Brian Posehn and Steve Agee talk about the Sarah Silverman program? You can do that. They were great on that show. And they were, they're, they're sweet guys. Uh, you want to hear Ted Leo perform uh, songs live in my apartment? When I used to record the show in my apartment, you can do that. Uh, you can find all our past stuff at our website, Maximum Fun. Uh, you can also find uh, years worth on YouTube to search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're at Bullseye on Twitter. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio shows have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 